Heavenly Father, we want to hear this single verse this morning with all the weight and all the majesty and all the relevance which you intend. We live amongst a people and even within our own church in a way that does not submit to this simple teaching. And so we pray that you would help us, Father. We as a church do not want to be swallowed up by a culture that rebels against you over such a beautiful command to honor marriage. And so if you would be gracious with us this morning and help us to see the beauty of it and the glory that it reflects back to you. When we live as a people who honor our marriage covenants, when we live as a people who hate sexual immorality of all kinds and instead want to be pure as you are pure, Father, we want to hear this this morning, not as another command that we do begrudgingly, but we want to hear it as a way of worship, where we can, as a people, worship you in our marriages and in our purity. We pray for our church. We pray for all your true churches here in South Bay and in the state and this nation and throughout the world that you would testify to your glory through our marriages. Father, I pray you would bring great conviction where we have made this matter small. I pray for great conviction, Lord, over any sexual morality in our lives that you would cause us to be so convicted today that we would flee from it and that you would, as only you can do by your Spirit, make us pure. Make us pure, Father. We know that you can, and so we ask that you would. In Christ's holy name, amen. Not much hope when you can't get through the prayer without crying. Not much hope. Hmm. Most of you know I didn't come to a saving grace until later in my life. So these passages are always really hard for me. I'm thankful for the grace of God. To save someone so wicked as I am.
These are hard times for marriage. Hard times. Back in the 1960s, for those of you old enough to remember, there was something called the free love movement. And it was the beginning of a culture that brought marriage to its knees. Living together outside of wedlock, engaging in premarital sex, adultery, divorce, they became part of the national dialogue and affirmed. Fast forward to June 26, 2015, and the Supreme Court of the United States issued a scathing rebuke against God and marriage. The high court used their power in a 5-4 decision to redefine the oldest relationship known to man, the sacred institution of marriage. In Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court ruled that the fundamental right to marry with all its rights and responsibilities, is guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution to same-sex couples. Their reasoning was perverted. They argued that personal autonomy grants same-sex couples that right. They argued that committed unions can be exercised among same-sex couples and therefore they have the right to marry. They argued, strangely enough, that it's the fundamental right of childbearing and procreation should be given to same-sex couples, even though same-sex couples cannot procreate. And they argued that marriage is a keystone of our social order. They got that right, but then they said there is no difference between same and opposite-sex couples with respect to marriage. Now, I know where... I would say all of you stand on this. Last year, the Pew Research Center, they concluded that 61% of Americans, that's two out of three, are at least verbally in favor of same-sex marriage. On that same survey, they found 35%, listen, 35% of professing evangelical Christians favor it as well. The Barna Group, a a Christian polling organization, I think a little more credible, they came up with a number a little lower but still grievous that 28% of practicing Christians are in favor of same-sex marriage. I do not believe there has been a greater attack on the institution or that relationship itself in the history of our country like today. And therefore, this teaching on marriage, we're doing one verse because it is urgent and it is relevant that we get it right that we know what God's word says about marriage and we live in accordance with it. It's not randomly placed here. You don't just get to Hebrews 13 verse 4 and go, oh, now marriage. The author has established that Christ has granted us access into the throne room of God. He's gone behind the veil through his broken body and spilled blood that we might come in and worship God. And in this worship, as we saw last week, He begins to delineate what this worship looked like. It's not just this. It's not just preaching and teaching and prayer and singing. It's the whole of life that God calls us to in worship. Look at verse 28 in chapter 12. Just 
have your eyes go up a bit. The author said, let us, therefore let us, the church, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us, the church, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And last week we saw that this worship includes a loving obedience to all that God teaches, to love one another, to practice hospitality, to minister to those who are persecuted. These are all expected commands of those who have been called into the presence of God through Christ to worship. And today we will consider how we worship God by honoring marriage, by keeping the marriage bed pure. We're going to do one verse, not only because we desperately need to hear it in this church, in this culture, in this moment, but we're going to do one verse because I believe that the church, and maybe even ours, we've lost a bit of the majesty and the glory and the purpose of marriage. So if you're here thinking, oh, great, we're going to talk very practically about how to be better husbands and better wives, that's not the sermon. I want to draw you up into the heavenlies. And I want to give you a picture of marriage that is defined in the character and nature of God himself. That you might rethink your own marriage and certainly how you counsel those who are considering it. Marriage is so much more than two people entering a committed relationship, having children, and enjoying their days together. So much more than that. Marriage is one of God's primary ways of making himself known. It's one of his primary ways of revealing his plan of redemption for the world. So here's your your big idea for the sermon. You ready? Marriage is to be honored because it makes God known and it puts the gospel on display for all the world to see. Marriage is to be honored because it makes God known and it puts the gospel of Jesus Christ on display for all the world to see. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And so I'd like to, with your patience, examine this means of worship. Worshiping God through marriage by looking at two points. Number one, to honor marriage. We worship God by honoring marriage. And number two, we worship God by keeping marriage pure. Honoring marriage and keeping marriage pure. Now, one hour after this sermon, if someone says, what are the two main points? If you can't remember, we're in trouble. Honor marriage, keep it pure. We got it? All right, number one. Look at verse four again. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In light of all the confusion of what marriage is, both outside and inside the church, I thought it might be good for us to start with a definition. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary, a good place to go. Here's your definition of marriage. Quote, an intimate and complementing union between a man and a woman in which the two become one physically in the whole of life. The purpose of marriage is to reflect the relationship of the Godhead and to serve Him. The primary purpose of marriage is to reflect the character and nature of God Himself and to serve God. Fantastic. Marriage for our author's audience, living in likely 
first century Rome was influenced by a culture very similar to ours, the parallels between first century Roman marriage and our Roman marriage and our marriages today are striking. Most of their marriages were not romantically based or attractionally based. They were arranged by families. That said, Romans did practice lawful monogamous marriages between a man and a woman. Infidelity and adultery were discouraged, as it is today, but still major problems in their culture. And Roman law, just like the state of California, had no-fault divorce. We thought we were ahead of our time. Listen to one historian. He writes, Divorce was common, particularly in the upper classes. When a woman divorced her husband, she could expect to receive her dowry back in full and would then return to patria potesta, the protection of her father. The author of Hebrews, rather than allowing the culture to swallow up the church, to dishonor marriage through divorce and sexual immorality, calls the church to worship God by, it says, honoring marriage, by valuing or esteeming highly the institution of marriage. Now, you probably already know this, that we live in a culture where 45% of all marriages end in divorce. 45% end in divorce. 35% of those who claim to be born-again Christians have marriages that end in divorce. The high rates of, of this infidelity to the covenant of marriage, I believe, is due in large part to the fact that most people, when they get married, they get married for selfish reasons. Most people, including Christians, get married today for themselves, for companionship or or intimacy, or a better financial situation, to have children for physical attraction. And although none of these are wrong, and by God's grace they'll be amplified in a marriage, they're not the reason that God instituted marriage. Not in the beginning. God created marriage, if you remember, as I just said, to reveal himself and his plan of redemption. That is the primary purpose why we have marriage, that God might be made known And his plan to expand his glory and his kingdom throughout the earth would be seen by all in Christ. And that's why, my beloved, being unfaithful to the marriage covenant, allowing sexual immorality or adultery to dishonor marriages is violence. Listen, it's violence against God and it's violence against God's kingdom. And that's why, under the laws of Moses, depending upon the circumstances, a man or a woman could be put to death for what they did in the context of marriage. We hear that and we say, that sounds so extreme, only because we don't understand why marriage is do we think it's extreme. So what do I mean? There are three fundamental purposes for marriage that most, I would say, do not think about when they're walking the aisle and they're going to say, I do. Three Basic one scripture that I want to bring out to you, flesh it out, lift it up, and you grab onto it and say, okay, now I know. First, the institution of marriage was made to reveal, now listen, the unity and plurality in the Trinity. Marriage was given by God to reveal to mankind the unity and the plurality inside the Trinity, in the Godhead, according to Genesis chapter 1. Mankind was created in God's image. 
with a plural composition, male and female. God, this is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three eternally distinct persons. They talked about this. They conferred together. And this is what they said, Genesis 1.26. They said to themselves, let us, plural, one God, three persons, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them how? Male and female. Male and female. Not all male, praise God. Not all female, praise God. All right, yeah, we're not laughing about that one so much. <laughs> male and female, he created them so they could do what? So they could complement one another. So they could complement one another. The climax of creation on day six was God making Adam and Eve, making them in his image, in the unity they shared of being what? Human beings, image bearers of God, and simultaneously enjoying two distinct, distinct, distinct genders. A shame we have to reiterate that today. Male and female able to complement one another. Now the climax of the climax on day six came in chapter 2 when God took these two distinct image bearers and did what? He made them one. He made them one flesh. Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's a miracle, you know. That's a miracle. God instituted marriage to bring the unity of Adam and Eve together and the plurality of their gender into the intimacy of a marriage, becoming one flesh in a covenant union so that God can, through every single marriage, say to the world, see me. So God can say, see how I am in my unity and my plurality. In other words, I would, I would argue the primary reason that we have marriage is so people can see God. The primary reason that marriage exists today is so people can see the character and nature of God. We know from the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that this triune God is infinitely united. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And the Bible teaches that he is also plural, Three eternally distinct beings in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Perfectly united and perfectly plural, complementing himself. In other words, marriage, all marriages put God's character on display for the world to see. Every single one. In every country, throughout all of human history, every marriage points to God. In marriage, a husband and wife are united. They share the same nature and essence as being image bearers of God. In marriage, they are equal members of the marriage covenant. In marriage, they enjoy intimacy of being one flesh, the common purpose of working for one goal, to glorify Christ. They're united. And at the exact same time, just like God, they complement one another. Eve, a woman, is taken from Adam, a man, as what? A suitable helpmate, Genesis 2.18. So that in marriage you have 
unity and plurality too. Distinct personalities, distinct roles, distinct positions, distinct authority. A marriage, I do believe, above all else, is designed to reflect the unity, plurality, intimacy, and love in the Godhead himself. You say, I thought you were going to talk to me about, you know, coming home at night and rubbing my wife's feet so I could show her my love for her. That's all part of it. But that's not why we get married. We get married that we might reveal God himself. Now, I don't know how many of you got married for that reason, but I pray that you rethink it from here on out. Not only in your own marriage, but in the counsel you give to others who are considering it. The implication of this, of God being one and plural at the same time, the implications are far-reaching, but one that cannot evade us in light of this teaching today. God can love his creation because he is one God with three eternally distinct persons in that Godhead. What do I mean by this? Now listen, you say this is too hard theologically. I want you to grasp this. In order for God to be God, he must be completely self-sufficient. Right? God cannot depend on anyone or anything if he is truly God. That's a simple thought. But in strict monotheistic religions like Judaism or like Islam, religions that reject the Trinity, in those religions it becomes impossible to talk about God being eternally and essentially loving or God being love because love requires someone else to love. So if before anything ever was, God had no one to love, then one, we cannot say he is love. We cannot say that he's always been loving from eternity past. And two, he becomes dependent on his creation to exercise and experience love. And if God becomes dependent upon anyone or anything, especially us, then he's not God. The Bible reveals clearly that the one God has three eternally distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in their unity and in their plurality, they have enjoyed loving, listen, and being loved forever and ever. They have always known it. They've always enjoyed it. They've always practiced it. God does not need his creation in order to love someone or something. He doesn't need his creation to love him either. And so instead of God creating to have someone to love, which would be perverted, God created that he might share and give his eternal love with his creation. You want to talk about a great love story. The eternal lover, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in himself wants to share his love with his creation. He wants to pour it out on his creation, specifically those made in his image. And therefore, God's love is a selfless, other-centered, giving love that overflows from who he is. So in a healthy marriage, listen, we'll make it a little practical. Husbands and wives are satisfied, first and foremost, in the love that they have in God through Christ. First and foremost. And therefore, they're able to enter a marriage voluntarily and love because they want to. With this type of Trinitarian love, when it's experienced in a marriage, when it is a truly selfless, 
other-centered love in the context of a marriage, God's love flowing through us to our spouses, oh my goodness, there will be fantastic unity. Fantastic unity in the husband and wife, truly becoming one flesh in the whole of life. And there will be supernatural plurality as husbands and wives complement each other, not competing, not fighting for position or power or authority in the house. That's ugly. But using the unique gifts that God has given to man and to woman put together to flourish using gifts given by God, specific roles given by God, that we might in our married life magnify God most. It means husbands, unashamedly, protecting, providing, and nourishing for your wife and children. Unashamedly. That is your role. Forget about what the culture tells you. It means wives, unashamedly, Raising up your children to love and serve the Lord. Unashamedly caring for the home. Unashamedly supporting your husband in every way you can to make him the best head over you and your house. That's not a cultural message, is it? That's what the Bible teaches. When a Trinitarian love is present in our marriages, you will find... Husbands who love and serve and sacrifice for their wives as Christ does the church. You'll find incredible love of a husband for a wife. When Trinitarian love is present, you'll find wives wanting to be helpmates. Wanting to submit, wanting to support, and wanting to encourage their husbands to be the best Christ man they can be. When Trinitarian love is present. My beloved, what what better way for God's people to honor marriage than to love husbands and wives, to love one another as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit love one another? What better way? There is none. So let's magnify marriage very well. Let's love each other in our marriages as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other. What a glorious way to reveal the unity, the plurality, the intimacy, and the love that's in the Godhead. We get so caught up on these dialogues and discussions and theologies on Trinity. How much better to reveal the Trinitarian nature of God's unity and plurality and love through marriage. So you don't believe in the Trinity? Come over to my house and have dinner. Look at my marriage. Two people becoming one flesh by the supernatural power of a living God. So first, I pray, if you're still with me, you see that the institution of marriage is to reveal the character and nature of God to this world, and therefore it must be honored by all. By all. There's another reason I want to share with you. That God instituted marriage to reveal the permanent loving union that God purposed with man. The permanent, eternal, loving union that God purposed with man. In Genesis 2.24, Moses wrote, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, literally cleave to his wife for how long? Until death do they part. It was a permanent union on this terra firma. Jesus made the permanency of marriage clear in Mark chapter 10, quoting Genesis 2.24. He said, the two shall become one flesh, and then here's his commentary. You know, it's always good to read Jesus' commentary. You know that, right? 
When Jesus comments on the Old Testament, perk your ears up. He said, so they are no longer two but one, said Jesus. And then he said in verse 9 of Mark 10, what therefore God has joined together, come on, you finish it. Let no man separate. Those are serious words. Jesus understood what marriage revealed to sinful man. He understood that it magnified the character and nature of God. He understood that it was a testimony to God's promise and commitment to his church. Jesus understood that. Not transient, not temporary, but God with the church forever and ever. We will be his people. He will be our God. John Piper goes so far as to say this. Listen, the meaning of marriage is the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. So you want to know why we have marriage? So that we can see and the world can see how much Christ loves his church and that is a covenant forever and ever. That's what makes divorce so bad. That's why God hates divorce so much. It wrecks the testimony, especially when it's in the context of the church. The eternal covenant that God has with us provides the soil, that rich soil necessary for intimacy and transparency, enables you to confess your sins in the presence of God and be forgiven and draw near to him. In healthy marriages, vows, most of you who've been to a wedding, in fact, I've never been to a wedding where there wasn't a vow of some kind. Vows are made. Wedding vows are made so that you can start with that same commitment, that same soil that will enable a married couple by God's grace over the years to grow in their intimacy and transparency and truthfulness with one another. But it starts with commitment. You see, when you have two people who are truly committed to loving one another for better or worse until death do they part, then they can be known and know the other. You you provide an opportunity for radical intimacy when we have commitment at the beginning, not at the end. That's why we make these lifelong commitments. Most of us, most of us in this culture, we make commitments based upon the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. I'll read it to you. It's been revised since, but I'll read you the old one. If you were going to be married in the Anglican church, this is what you would have said. In the name of God, that's a good place to start. In the name of God, I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, most of you know this, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. And then it finishes with, this is my solemn vow. Committed to God, committed to the spouse. Until death do we part. Let no man tear asunder because the commitment in marriage reveals the commitment of God to his church. And we want to know that, don't we, saints? You want to know that Christ is not going to give up on you. You want to know that Christ is not going to give up on his bride and say, I'm not coming back. Now, practically speaking, divorce dishonors marriage and is destructive, listen, in every single way. Divorce destroys. It's a wrecking ball on God's creation. Societies are built on healthy, stable families without exception. 
Churches are built by healthy families, husbands and wives committed in the good times and the bad times to stay the course. You introduce the dissolution of marriage. You introduce in California no-fault divorce laws, and you utterly destroy all the good that God has made. You destroy it. Studies have shown for decades now because we have lots of practice in divorce. For decades, men and women who divorce are more likely listened to experience substance abuse, poverty, emotional trauma, isolation, physical health problems, and suicide. It's worse for children. Same studies. Children from divorced homes are more likely to poverty, social and cognitive impairment, early sexual activity, high levels of anxiety, physical health problems, suicide, substance abuse, and this breaks my heart the most, a rejection of their faith. Fastest way that parents can set their children on the road to perdition is to end the marriage. Ruins their faith. This may shock some of you. In 1970, 84% of the children in the United States lived with married biological parents. 84%. Fast forward 39 years. In 2009, that number dropped to 60%. 40% of children currently live in divorced homes. 40%. In the African-American community, 29% of children live with their married biological parents, and over 50% live with single moms. 50%. You know, I thought in light of this, all discussion surrounding the BLM movement, instead of insisting on systematic racism, wouldn't the African-American community be better served by addressing fatherless homes? Wouldn't they be better served by addressing the destruction of the family through adultery, sexual morality, and divorce? I believe so. The author understood that committed marriages point to God's commitment for his church. So before the one in three Christians pull the trigger this year to divorce, when things get difficult, they ought to remember the testimony to the world that God is making through them. It's more than their personal needs. It's more than just their family. It is what God is revealing through that union that he made. And as tragic as the consequences of divorce are, for our homes, for the parents, for the children, for the church, and for society, the greatest violence, listen, is against God. The greatest violence of a broken home is against God because it tarnishes the very revelation he means to reveal through marriage. And it should terrify us that we would do such a horrific thing. It tarnishes the very revelation that you will see next week. Drop your eyes down to verse 5. God says to his bride, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's upon that vow that we commit ourselves, husbands and wives, to one another. Because God has made that promise and we want to, in our marriages, reveal that to the world. God is faithful, so we will be faithful. So we honor marriage because it reveals God's nature. We honor marriage because it reveals God's commitment. I got one more in this point if you're still with me. Are you still with me? Come on. Come on, come on. It reveals his cosmic plan. Say, what what is that? God intends to fill the earth with his glory, with children through covenant marriages. It's an incredible plan. I don't know that 
I didn't. I'll speak for myself. I did not come to my wife and say, honey, this is what I want. I want to marry you so we can have children and spread the kingdom of God all over the earth and then rule with Christ one day. Let's get married. That wasn't my thought. It should have been my thought asking Lori to participate in this great plan of God's glory and redemption for the whole earth. That's bigger than what I was thinking. I was thinking a house, a car, and some kids. Uh, This is a little bit bigger. What was the first thing that God did after he blessed Adam and Eve's marital union? What is the first thing he did? He commanded them, Genesis 1.28, to what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You're married? Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Fill the earth. In other words, marriage has always been essential to God's plan. It's always been essential to God's plan to expand his kingdom and to have the church rule with Christ. To expand his kingdom and have the church rule with Christ. Married couples serve together as God's vice regents on earth and we are to expand the paradise of the garden. Remember, in the garden... Adam and Eve enjoyed the intimate, personal, physical presence of God. They walked with God. They talked with God. They communed with God as image bearers. And so God, wanting to share, remember, his Trinitarian love with his creation, he institutes marriage that we might get married and have children and do what? Bring millions more image bearers into this world, millions more that he might lavish and pour out his love on them too. And this has always been the plan. The multiplication of image bearers' children through covenant marriage. To increase, listen, to increase the number of people who will worship God and enjoy God's love. To increase the number of people who have an opportunity to come into the presence of God forever and enjoy God's family, the church. Marriage is to be people growing. It's to be nation building. A nation for God that will spend all of eternity worshiping Him, serving Him, and enjoying Him. It's also supposed to be earth subduing. You know, we we hear such radical lies about mankind and planet earth. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. Married couples bearing children and bringing up generation after generation who will exercise a righteous leadership and a godly stewardship over all creation. That's our destiny, church. And we're supposed to do that now by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, by His grace, He saved me, He saved Lori, He brought us into a covenant relationship of marriage and we wanted We wanted to be faithful to the command to be fruitful and multiply. Some of you may not know, but we have 14 children. We have 14 children, 11 of whom I believe are with the Lord, and I cannot wait to meet them one day. Three, by God's grace, survived. They came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Two of those three, two of those three, have married and now have children of their own. And by God's grace, they will be raised to love and know and serve the Lord. They too will get married. They too will have children. And so it goes on generation after generation of God expanding his glory and majesty through the covenant of marriage. That's the plan. It's such a glorious plan. 
I mean, you think, oh, children are just such a blessing for us. They are. They're incredible. But it's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about his kingdom. We get to taste the fruit of it, but the purpose is not ours. To dishonor marriage is grievous to God. It dishonors marriage for couples, listen, to willfully refuse to have children without biblical cause. It dishonors marriage. It's a dishonor to marriage for couples to limit by choice to have the 1.8 children. I'm going to have two children because of my career and my finances, and I want to be here. That dishonors God. It's a dishonor to marriage to not raise our children to love and serve Jesus Christ. If you as parents have received the blessing of a child, that is why God gave him or her to you, to serve Jesus, to participate in the subduing of the earth. We train our children to become leaders of the earth, to become the salt and the light in the depth of this sin that Christ might be brilliant through our generations. My beloved, do you see how much bigger marriage is? Do you see that through marriage, God's nature is revealed to the world, his commitment is revealed to the church, and his plan to expand his kingdom to the very four corners of the globe is revealed in marriage? So my young unmarrieds, listen. Before you consider saying I do, make sure you understand why God put marriage on this planet in the first place. Consider your future husband or wife knowing that your marriage is intended to reveal God's character, his commitment, and his kingdom. And therefore to dishonor it through divorce, through adultery, through sexual immorality is grievous violence against God first. Against God first. To dishonor marriage. God hates it. Not only because it destroys his creation, but it reveals him in the wrong way. For those who are married, I pray that you know more now what a privilege and honor it is to be married in the good times and in the bad. Realize who and what you represent in your marriage. You reflect the unity and plurality and intimacy and love in the Godhead. That's a big deal. You reflect to the world the commitment that Christ has made to his bride, the church. That's a big deal. You participate in the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's a big deal. So divorce, sexual immorality, anything that dishonors the marriage covenant is grievous to God and should be avoided. So first I pray we see that we are brought into the presence of God to worship him by honoring our marriage. I got one more point. Can you stay with me? One more Purity as well. Point number two, we are to keep the marriage bed pure. Look at verse four again. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be, what? Say it with me. Undefiled. Undefiled. Let marriage be lifted with high esteem, valued greatly, and keep the marriage undefiled. That word literally means without stain, Without impurity, even the slightest hint of sexual immorality, it's holiness, it's purity. 
And I, I sat on this a long time and was so convicted of my own marriage. How, how pure have I kept it? The author's audience, living in Rome, they were subject to all the normal temptations of the flesh that we know today. They had legalized prostitution. They had Roman brothels and they had temple prostitution. The language here, my beloved, is actually speaking to the desecration of the sacred. It's, it's talking about rendering someone, listen, unable to worship God. That's the language of this text. Remember the warning from Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and then added to that in verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral. You can fail to obtain the grace of God by persisting in sexual immorality. Because God is holy and he instituted the covenant of marriage to be holy for all people, and especially for Christians then and now, to defile the marriage bed is to desecrate and destroy what God has made sacred. And in so doing, listen, it makes the worshiper unfit for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul wrote this. Speaking of sexual immorality and adultery, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? So when we engage in sexual morality of any kind, we are bringing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Triune God, into that moment. When Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, God not man, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He said that with all the force of the understanding that God brings two people together and makes them one. It's God's doing, not man's. God is present, listen, in every single lawful marriage. Not, he's not talking about just Christians. Marriage is to be honored by all, inside the church and outside the church. Because when God takes two people and makes them one flesh, that is a supernatural relational bond made by God. Every single marriage, therefore, is sacred. And every single marriage is intended to remain sacred by God. And therefore, listen, anything or anyone that causes the marriage to be defiled in any way is understood as to be accursed. The verse gives us some examples. Look again. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The word adulterous in the Greek, it's moikos, and it means someone who breaks the wedding vow, someone who goes outside of the marriage covenant and engages in sexual activity with someone other than their wife or their husband. Now the word for sexually immoral in the Greek, grievously, you know all too well. You say, I don't know Greek. You do. It's pornos, where we get the English word pornography. Now, when you hear that word, you realize immediately the extent to which this defilement includes all sexual activity of heart, mind, and hand that is outside of the marriage covenant. It's such a great standard for young people to adopt, to say, I'm going to keep my marriage bed pure. 
I, I, I won't do anything. Listen. I won't do anything that will defile my future wedding bed. Not anything with my heart or my mind. Not anything in action. No infatuation, no physical longing that will bring shame to my future husband or my future spouse and the wedding bed we will enjoy in Christ. Such statements in this day and age where sexual activity is not only accepted but encouraged by virtually every form of entertainment, advertising, social media, in, in a world where pornographic images are, they swipe on your phone away. I realize these statements, statements sound antiquated and maybe puritanical. And you think, you're, just, you're 54, you're old-fashioned. Listen, God is not a respecter of time or circumstance or culture. God is not. The same expectations of God for Adam and Eve and the church in first century Rome he has for his people today. They have not changed. And that, my friends, makes the pervasiveness of sexual immorality in our culture now in the church, I would argue, a national emergency, an ecclesiastical emergency. And we'll shut down our entire country for months on end because a virus has taken the lives of 0.07% of the United States population while at the exact same time Generations are being swallowed up by the sexual perversion that comes through a culture that rejects God. We currently live in a culture where 22% of men and 14% of women commit physical adultery during their married life. 22% of men, 14% of women. A culture where porn sites receive, this number is just I verified this and I cross-referenced it. 450 million uniquely monthly visitors. 450 million unique visitations on porn sites. You know that's more than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. An estimated 40 million people in the United States visit porn sites regularly. And does it affect marriage? The use of pornography increases marital infidelity by 300%. 300%. 68% of all divorces, 68% of all divorces, one spouse has met a new lover over the internet. And in 56% of divorces, at least one spouse has, quote, an obsessive interest in porn, end quote. It is grievous. The head should be shaking. Most grievous of all, the recent studies have revealed that 64% of professing Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. Once a month. We're supposed to be pure. Our testimony to the world is supposed to be one of purity. How bad is it? And how bad has the marriage bed in the church become? 36%, 36%, that's one out of every three professing evangelical Christians believe that sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed relationship is, quote, sometimes or always acceptable. One in three in evangelical circles said that sometimes are always acceptable. 
Do you know that in 2016, unmarried women accounted for 86% of all abortions in the United States? Unmarried women. So that thinking is murderous. 860,000 murdered babies in one year because the marriage bed was defiled in the name of sexual liberation. 160,000 babies murdered as a result of the defilement of the wedding bed. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. You say, well, you know what? The, the culture has influenced us. The church is confused. God is not. God has always considered it and thought of it the same, has for a thousand years. Look at the verse again. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He will judge. The word is not discipline. It's punishment. The final judgment for all those who persist in Claim Christ, persist in illicit sexual activity. My beloved, there's no question on this in Scripture. It permeates the Old Testament. It's identified and defined in the New Testament. Listen to Paul again, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. He said, do you not know, because they did, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Will not. You cannot rail, the church cannot rail against God's revealed nature, his commitment, and his kingdom through marriage and call ourselves friends of God. We cannot continually act upon Fleshly appetites with a complete disregard for consuming a member of the opposite sex, someone who is an image bearer, and expect God not to judge. The only hope, my beloved, that we have, I believe, of escaping the judgment to come for the pervasive sexual immorality in this culture and in the church is confessing these sins to God, turning and putting all our hope in Christ and then turning from those sins. Paul said in the next verse, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, such were some of you. We're not supposed to be like this anymore. Divorce is not supposed to be in the church. Sexual morality is not supposed to be in the church. Such were some of you. But then he says, listen, and here's your hope. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're pure in Christ. We're not supposed to go back. We're not supposed to revel in the sin and the defilement that Christ through his blood has cleansed us from. You see, my beloved, when the greatest glory of God's creation, the bringing together of a man and a woman in holy marriage in Genesis 2, when it became the greatest tragedy in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, divorced God, and essentially divorced one another, only, now listen, only the divine love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could come and make things right. Only the divine love of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit could come and restore this broken marriage between God and man and man to man. And he did that, as you know, through the cross of Christ. He did that by sending the perfect husband. He came, Christ came, and removed every barrier of every sin that keeps us, his bride, from himself. He went to the cross to tear up the divorce papers that we filed against God in our sin. He said, no more. 
He went to the cross to reestablish the permanent covenant, relational love covenant between God and man. He went to the cross to draw us in, to be the husband that nourishes and cherishes his bride, the church. And he did this by receiving our complete and total punishment in full. Every sin, every sexual sin, every lustful thought Jesus paid for in his pure, undefiled body upon the cross. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, was considered defiled by God. He was not defiled. He remained pure, but he was considered defiled by God so that we defiled sinners through and through could be made what? Made pure. Oh, my beloved, to be made pure by God through the blood of Christ. I want that for you. I want that for me. Jesus Christ did all of this so that the ultimate marriage, the last and final wedding between the Lamb and His bride, between Christ and the church could come to pass. I'm sure you've noticed this because you know your Bible well. The beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story starts with a marriage between a man and a woman. Adam and Eve, and then it ends in a glorious fashion in Revelation 21 with the wedding between Jesus and his church. It is a marriage-saturated story. Listen to John, Revelation 21. John gets a glimpse of this. He said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, what? As a bride adorned for her husband. That's you, saints. Then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me and said this, Come, I will show you the bride, that is the church, the wife of the Lamb, made pure by the blood of Christ. Do you see why marriage and sexual purity are so much more important than we think? Every marriage, listen, every marriage is a reenactment. Every marriage retells the biblical love story, the gospel testimony to the world. Every single marriage, the Son of God, stepping out of eternity, entering time, taking on the flesh, and then pursuing and winning his bride, the church, by giving his body and his blood on the cross. What a pursuit. What a lover. What a husband we have in Jesus. Are you part of the bride? Are you a member of the body of Christ? Have you confessed your sins, all the sins, all your sexual immorality, all your adultery? Every sin against God is adultery against God. Have you confessed that? Have you turned from your sinful ways and put your hope in the power of Christ to save you? If not, then today is what? Today's your engagement day. Today's the day where you turn from your sin and you say, no more will I live in this darkness. No no longer will I allow sexual sin to envelop me. But you will turn, you will confess, and you receive forgiveness and mercy in Christ and become part of his bride too. My beloved, let marriage be held in high honor among all and let our marriage beds be undefiled. Husbands and wives, I, I beseech you to work hard to reveal the unity and plurality in your marriages. Grow in your love and your intimacy for one another. You're one. And then exercise the fantastic gender-specific gifts that God has given you to love and complement one another. 
Work hard, married couples, to remain committed to reveal the commitment that God has for His church. Moms and dads, work hard by having children and raising them to know the Lord that you might participate in this great plan. Train them up. Keep the wedding bed pure. We must be like Joseph and flee from Potiphar's house at even the slightest temptation. Flee from it. My unmarrieds, you keep the marriage bed pure that you already have with Christ. If you're in Christ, you have a marriage bed. Keep it pure with him and keep it pure for your future spouse. Don't bring all the shame that I had to bring into mine. Don't do that. Much grief and much heartache. Parents, I beseech you to guard diligently the hearts and minds of your children. You must shelter their eyes. You must guard their eyes. You must guard their hearts in this place. You absolutely must. You must model for them, by God's grace, what a healthy biblical marriage looks like and then train them to enter the same. All of us should be praying for ourselves, for our marriages, their marriages in this church and the marriages in this country. There's one thing we get, we understand that eternity hangs in the balance. Either the just punishment we deserve for our sexual deviance or by God's grace being saved, redeemed, and participating in the wedding of the Lamb and His bride, the church, when He comes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, my first response to this is one of confession. For me and my marriage, for our church and for your church throughout the world, Lord, we are not striving for the purity that you have given us in Christ. We are not fighting for the covenant of marriage that reveals your character, your commitment, and the expansion of your kingdom that's been given to us in Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would take the teaching from today and you would apply it to your people here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that we would never look at marriage the same, that we would not look at our own marriages the same. As we speak to our children and the young people in the church, that we would encourage them to enter this with much fear and trembling, that there's nothing light about it. And I pray, Father, that you would strike all sexual morality from this place that we would not defile you and your glory by bringing it into this place, that we would not bring harm to our brothers and sisters, but instead would strive by the power of your Spirit to be holy, to be pure as you are holy and pure. Father, we come before you in desperate need. Our, our flesh is powerful and this culture is overwhelming, but you can strike it from us and you can make us, transform us into the people that we already are in Christ. I ask that you would do that, Lord, for the blessing of my brothers and sisters and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.